if you ever get the chance to talk to any comic book shop owner, ask them about how often people bring in comics to sell to them. A lot of people seem to believe that comics are amazing collector's items and that their age, whether it be 10 years or 50, brings value to the table. But that just isn't true. The world of collectibles, comics, cards, books, statues, toys, anything really, is subjective. Many collectors are sold on the rarity and increased value of the items they buy. Sometimes that isn't the case, and the collector loses out, because their investment never increased in value, I say as I side-eye a dinosaur beanie baby. In the 1980s, the industry realized there was an increase in the number of people trying to collect comic books. They surely must have thought, what if we could create enough collectibles for everyone to meet the demand? Surely everyone wins, right? What could possibly go wrong? Comic books have given us some of the longest-lasting characters who inspire and sometimes motivate us to do better. Sadly, the industry behind them is not beholden to such ideals. From controversial stories and censorship to double-crossing companies leaving creators in obscurity, the history of sequential art is dark, deep, and complex. In comic books, there is a name for the tomes that we dig through exploring the full history, good and bad, of the characters we love. These are Back Issues. In 1986, two of the most influential modern comics ever were published. The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. Both of these were the beginning of the graphic novel boom that DC would push forward with to reach their adult readers who had fallen out of reading during the Silver Age. The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller tells the story of an aging Batman pulled back into action, eventually leading to a fight with Superman, who is acting as a sort of government agent. Do you bleed? I can hear Batflex saying it right now. The Dark Knight Returns was the basis for that entire idea. The dark and gritty story is considered the template for most modern Batman adaptations actually, particularly Batman v Superman, where he even dons a similar armored Batsuit to fight Superman. Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons introduced a darker version of our own world where crime-fighting vigilantes existed, albeit many of them were powerless. The only example of a superpowered figure was Dr. Manhattan, an omnipresent and infinitely powerful being created by a scientific accident. Watchmen is considered by many to not just be the best comic book of all time, but one of the best books written in modern times, period. It is layered with multiple stories, weaving characters, plot lines, and mystery throughout expertly taking full advantage of the visual nature of the medium. Watchmen is the only graphic novel that appears in Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Novels list. Note that this doesn't even specify an era, 
but comprises their list of all novels published. I mean, damn, if that doesn't perk your interest, whether you're a graphic novel reader or not, I don't know what will. The two books were so popular that every publisher would make changes to existing characters or create new characters to replicate the tone and feel of these two books. By extension, this meant that many new graphic novels and comics began to be aimed more and more at adult readers. Many of these readers had grown up with the characters and were eager to find stories that matched their adult sensibilities. Many of these people were also collectors of older stories, holding onto the heroes of their youth. The nature of comics as a disposable medium made collecting difficult and expensive though. These adult readers had seen how comics had increased in value due to their limited printings and their expendable nature. With these new books, collectors began taking greater care of the comics they bought, sometimes even buying multiple copies of the same issue. They were not going to lose so much of their history again due to lack of foresight. Between the regular demand of these books by adults who had the income to support an expensive reading habit, and collectors, the demand for comics began to skyrocket once again. To capitalize on this new volume of demands, newer books and limited series began to pop up, such as Secret Wars and Crisis on Infinite Earths. That wasn't all though. Due to the high volume of books being created, publishing books became cheaper than ever, and so many small groups formed to publish as many low-quality comics as they could to take advantage of the situation. We know you have heard of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but do you recall all of their rip-offs? Street Sharks, Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters. And honestly, that list could probably go on a while longer, but I only have so much time. Many of the books that came out during this time were cheap spoofs, or copies of the most popular books of the time. Another comparison could be made to the film production company The Asylum, who often titles their own films to create confusion with more casual viewers, causing them to buy or rent the wrong film. I'm specifically talking about you, Transmorphers, a movie that my own father made the mistake of picking up. So, a quick summary. Mature books got adults reading comics again, and they sought to collect them. In response, more stories were published than ever by not just Marvel and DC, but by a whole bunch of new publishers that had sprung up. Even the big two, DC and Marvel, were not immune to exploiting readers. During the peak of the late 80s, early 90s, these companies attempted every stunt they could to decrease their expenses and increase their income. During this time, you could find number one issues for new series, with the number posted large enough to grab attention. Collector's cards, holographic covers, deaths of prominent characters, new characters taking on old mantles, universal revamps, more violence, multiple alternate covers that were more rare to find than the standard cover, and video game tie-ins. These two companies would plaster terms such as collector's issue onto books 
that would receive some of the largest numbers of prints to increase demand further. Touted by even mainstream news were events such as the death of Superman and the end of Bruce Wayne as Batman. These were unprecedented events at the time. But when they were undone in just a year's time, collectors found themselves with a bulk number of issues that no one really seemed to want because the stories inside didn't matter. To add to the increased number of publishers was the number of retailers. Distribution companies like Diamond, who ship books to shops, make it cheaper and easier than ever for someone to become a retailer. For every shop that opened, sales transferred to wherever the cheapest or closest books were. Established comic book shops were starting to suffer because more and more shops were opening nearby many of the people that used to visit them. As people became more aware that their books were not retaining value and that there was an overabundance of comics entering the market, smaller publishers began to dramatically lose sales, leading to these companies folding like a set of dominoes. Wait, dominoes don't fold, they just... anyways. Let's look at a specific issue that should be important and worth collecting, and that is New Mutants number 87, which is the first appearance of Cable, a major X-Men character who is also portrayed by Josh Brolin in Deadpool 2. A first print of this issue is worth around only $300 today, and that's if it's in the absolute best condition and has been sealed up. That may seem like good money, but many characters were introduced at the time who never reached Cable's notoriety and whose first appearances are worthless, either because the character ended up not being important or because too many copies of that issue were printed, making the rarity just nothing. If you attempted to cover your bases by trying to get everything at the time, you would not recoup your investment. More books than ever were being created, which meant caution was being thrown to the wind in story quality so deadlines could be met. Marvel even outsourced some of its best-known titles to outside companies. Executives at Marvel were also distributing losses around various holding companies to minimize the appearance of these losses. And all of these factors contributed to what is considered the comic book crash. Comic companies stuffing the market until it exploded because no one actually had anything. Even now, you can find shops with boxes and boxes of back issues from the 90s that nobody wants. They can't even give these things away. The owner of my local shop won't even give a second glance at anyone bringing in books from the 90s. And 30 years ago at this point seems long enough ago that they would be worth something. But most of them aren't. The comic book crash would have one final effect. Marvel Comics, on Christmas in 1996, would file for bankruptcy. To further cut costs, Marvel acquired a comics distributor, Heroes World Distribution. 
On top of the issue that people were no longer buying comics in the volume that they were in the early 90s, Heroes World Distribution struggled with orders, and retailers became frustrated with their methods of ordering. In short, messy corporate organization and incompetence doomed Marvel's new distribution method from the very beginning. December 27, 1996 was actually the day that Marvel filed for bankruptcy. They fired around a third of their employees and did major restructuring. The world was on to the game that the comics industry was playing. Comic books saw all-time low sales in 2001. In order to survive, Marvel sold movie rights of their most popular characters to several film companies. There was consideration that comics would never recover. Even I have to admit at this point that Marvel selling their rights to their most popular characters for near pennies was something that kind of paid off in the long run. Because of this, we got the early 2000s Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films. We were able to watch Blade. We were able to see the X-Men films. While they are considered at this point to be lacking in some ways, they were the stepping stones for the MCU that we have today. Since 1996, a lot of things have changed, and comics are in many forms recovering, sometimes flourishing. Now we still see event books, special collector's editions, new number ones, and so on, but the volume of these sales practices has dramatically decreased. Independent publishers are even thriving, and their output actually rivals that of Marvel and DC. I would even so go so far as to suggest if you want to get into comics, you have a lot of choices in the independent market, and that you should probably go there first. In the last couple of years, I have started to notice the trend pop its ugly head again. First appearances are new number one issues here and there with hopes to grab new readers. Recently, a new Joker sidekick was highly touted as a collectible issue. But only time will tell if it's actually worth anything. Remember that the next time you're in a comic shop. Maybe read for love, and don't worry about the money later. What's in your hands may be worthless to others one day, so you at least want it to mean something to you. Season 1 of Back Issues was written, edited, researched, and birthed by me, Marcus Robertson. I hope you really enjoyed this first season, and if you do, consider subscribing and going to my social media links below and saying hello. Furthermore, if you're willing to give, I do have a Patreon. I want to continue to explore all that comics have to offer, and I can share that journey with your help. But if all you have to give me is your time, I just want to thank you so much for giving even that. You're all the best, and I cannot wait to share more with you.